This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The world of advertising, do you know much about it? To me, it has always sounded creative, elite and expensive. Ennis Chehich is going to explain it and tell us about it in this fictional wealth of writing. Welcome, Ennis. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for having me. Hi. Well, look, there's so many people who work in advertising. They've all got different titles. There's account executives or strategists, art directors. But let's just jump in to page 227 and you read about some of them, please. I'd love to. Uh, This story is called Passage. Two people from the media department were secretly researching their salaries. In the production department, someone was looking up the greatest love letters of all time. Someone else was selecting a more soothing picture for the desktop. Another person was reading a well-researched article about the possibility of gaining wealth through doing one small thing well. In the design department, the team leaders were evaluating timelines of their projects, while their designers were cranking tunes, sharing Spotify playlists, and talking about French bands they liked other than Daft Punk and Air. There was one designer who wasn't partaking in this conversation, but instead was going through her spam folder and unsubscribing from newsletters she no longer cared about. In the content department, a writer was taking his time finishing an article that proposed a cure for fast sickness through cheap personal loans. His two co-workers were discussing their aborted beginnings of novels they planned to write. In other, lesser-known departments, UX, animation, and IT, people were running updates on their computers, deleting personal files, watching career-inspiring TED Talks, and simultaneously reading the latest banter on Slack. His collective complacency was normal. It was close to the end of the working day and everyone was quietly waiting to go home. To go home. The book is called Sadvertising. So does that mean that everybody who works here aren't happy? It's a really good question. I think, no, I think people are ecstatic and they're very optimistic in advertising. The title actually comes from term that was coined in the industry. I'm not sure where it went originally, but it's been around since sort of the mid-2000s. And it's a term that describes very emotional advertising. And it was kind of created to give credence to a lot of the work that was coming out at the time that was very, it was pulling at your heartstrings. It was like, you know, babies selling cars and, and cats selling soft toilet paper. And it was all fluffy and it made you feel really warm inside. So that term is a collective term that's used to kind of say very, very, advertising that can make you cry, essentially. And I've always thought that it was a very apt term for the book that I was writing. And it just perfect, perfectly suited the satirical, the sardonic voice I had in mind for this book. Well, you do talk about the problem with the content department was that no one was content with the content they were writing. And you also write about being literary laments. They wanted to be writers of literature not ads. But let's get back to the seriousness of this book. Well, seriousness, as if. The makeup of the book, Sadvertising, is short stories and they come in different lengths. There's the mini, the mead and the max. In the max, there's a story called Meta Ennis. Now, meta can mean transformed or more developed. So Meta Ennis is you and Perhaps you had this idea about advertising in the beginning. Can you read from page 191, please? Um, 
I'll just read this small bit. Yes, he said, but if you think about our modern times, the ethos of consumerism makes you think all your desires are worthy and you should always get what you want. And today we want everything because we constantly desire better versions of ourselves and companies don't sell products anymore. They sell idealism. Mm, now this does sound pretty serious. So Meta Ennis, how has his vision about advertising changed? It's changed a lot. I mean, I figured out the voice of the book very early on. So all the stories kind of carried the same kind of sardonic, satirical tone to themselves. But I, I needed to inject myself into the book because I felt a little bit detached. So, and I love metafictionality, which is autofiction. So it's an exploration of self in, in fiction. So I think the meta and stories, there's three of them. They're subtly woven through the book, but they carry a personal narrative, which is the author himself. In advertising, you have a lot of disillusionment because I think it's a world that is centered around commercial creativity. But most of us, like the people in the content department, they want to be poets and novelists, tend to forget that it's our duty in life to save our dreams. So we often carry on. You know, we, we work the engine and it's a fun, it's a wonderful industry to be in. But that's the thing. You can sometimes forget that you actually want to be a novelist. Even Meta Ennis tells Ina in Sarajevo, to follow her art, not advertising. Never choose security over art. But let's look inside the advertising industry in just how they work in that open office environment. Does this suit everybody? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> I think when the pandemic hit, there were so many people from, they just got happier. You know, they, uh, it's the introverts who, a lot of people who, who work in analytics who don't really like office banter and would prefer to just stay home. Tell us about David because he is just a delight. Oh, David, who builds a fort. Yes. David is a story that is inspired by a real event, actually. It never eventuated the way it eventuated, but it, it was based on a, on a friend of mine who, who I think struggled in similar conditions with, with being an introvert in a place that is full of loudmouths. <laughs> and he was trying to build a fort around himself unintentionally. But I think that's the beauty of it. I think a lot of it has to do with the way the environment is structured. The cubicles have been taken down and uh, it just becomes an open space to come over and say hi. <laughs> I loved it that he he was building a fort to minimise conversation and then it became and he became the centre of conversation <laughs> and the pinnacle of all advertising jobs. Now, this, of course, is fictional. Once you're invited in, there's special preparations before you get there and into the war room. So what happens in there? The war room is a very special place. A war room is typically created when there's a big pitch, when there's a big client and we want to win this job. So we kind of almost recreate this one space and we go, this is the war room. We will spend the next 72 hours in here all together. We'll eat, we'll fight, we'll get angry, we'll fight, but we'll come up with the best idea ever. And that's the space that exists in every advertising agency. But, you know, my whole intention is to is to almost like seek the most absurdist conclusion to any narrative. So a lot of the ideas that I had were, you know, I kind of thought of, you know, just a general, you know, it's a war from every agency has it. But with this one in this story, I just had to turn it into something completely ludicrous. So they didn't solve the real world problems. I love the way you 
satirise how this process is done with people watching over your shoulder. Is that a, a true creative process? It is. There's, unfortunately, there's a thing that happens in agencies where people just become hovering art directors. They don't want to be, but they hover around a designer who might be you know, making a little banner ad or making a social post and suddenly somebody has an opinion and they will just stand around and go, oh, move this up and move that up and move that up. And suddenly everybody's a professional, well-trained art director. <laughs> and sort of you, you've taken that into the next step of those that are losing their curiosity, start doing this therapy, and then into the step after that, into performance art. You know, I've worked with a lot of art directors, the copywriter, you always get partnered up with an art director or a designer. And I've always found the process so soothing. It just like it lessened my anxiety. And I thought, oh, this could actually be a really cool way to create a therapy session. Uh, but the second part, the exhibition, is, is a really big character that I've been working on. And his name is Conrad Krusman. And he kind of emerged in the book. He's someone that I genuinely became very obsessed about. And, and he kind of came to me almost in, in sort of like art reviews. I, I, I thought of his work before I thought of him as an artist. And in the book, there's actually two stories of Conrad Krusman, like this kind of elusive character, I feel like almost will exist. It's a story that, that, that I keep writing now. I think it's one of those... Like Will Self, the writer, he always had a doctor that emerged out of his first short story collection uh, that kind of just kept carrying through each of his novels. I think something similar happened to me unintentionally with advertising. I've created this character now that I just have to birth. I have to, I have to make him into a real thing. Well, not only did you create a character that metamorphosized, you also had logos metamorphosizing and uh, sort of deciding to do their own thing. <laughs> Look, advertising has been here forever. I grew up with Marlboro Man back in 1978, and it certainly sold cigarettes. But all those people in your stories seem to smoke a lot. Haven't they read or seen the advertising against it? No, a lot of my characters, I was a heavy smoker for a very long time. And obviously I smoked a lot of cigarettes when I wrote advertising. So I think they naturally kind of carried themselves through into the characters. Uh, and the Marlboro Man became my obsession because I had to write a story about spam, the, the history of spam and how it emerged. I, I kind of really zoned in on the, the sexiness of smoking and the Marlboro Man just had to, had to make an appearance. <laughs> he did. So would you have brain surgery to make yourself immune to advertising? It could be an innovation against capitalism, a first move against the art of persuasion that had dominated humanity's needs and desires for too long. What about if it was just a pill you could take? And how would advertisers respond? <laughs> that was a clever one. That was a very clever short story in there. Then we also get a question about the industry with its gender equality. You know, quote, what's a little bit of sexism in the office anyway? Mm. So one wonders whether it exists. And I loved what the woman in the accounts department did to rectify it. Very clever. Keep that one secret. <laughs> we also get a bit of history. As you said, we got the first spam stories. And people we should know about, Matthew Brady, father of photojournalism. But he did other things too. Big time. 
a lot of the things that I did with advertising was I, I intentionally wanted to kind of uh, remove a sense of place because I, I kind of wrote about nondescript offices. So most of most of the stories kind of exist in offices and people can relate to, relate to them anywhere in the world. But there was a few key figures that I really, really needed to zone in on. And when I found out about Matthew Brady, and it's a well-known fact that he kind of created one of the first modern advertisements, uh, but I, I, I needed to find a parallel our uh, Matthew Brady from Van Diemen's Land, a bush Benjamin Brady, as they used to call him. So it's just a chance for me to kind of explore technically how to tell this story because this is, um, you know, my intention, you know, I don't write the traditional short story. I really wanted to create this book in varied forms. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's every length you can think of. I like the way that you said that you've borrowed another story because there's a quote in here that 99% of advertising comes from other advertising. And you list some of the really good ones. And, look, I I had a great time going through YouTube just watching them. (laughs) I've learned a lot. So if you would like insight and satire abounding in short stories, have a look at the advertising industry in Sadvertising by Ennis Chehich. Thanks, Ennis. As hard as this book was to write, it was just a pleasure to write because I had so much fun. Thanks for having me, Jen. And now David talks with Dominique Wilson about her book. The arc of Dominique Wilson's novel, Orphan Rock, is epic. We traverse a century in the life of Australia following two particular women. So, Dominique, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. From Ben Hall to World War II, you touch on some fascinating moments in Australian history. You had so much happening from Ben Hall and then you had the, all the problems with immigration and the Chinese. You had the white Australia policy and on and on. A fascinating time right up until World War II. Now, one event that interested me, and there, there are so many, so I'm just sort of picking it almost at random. You make reference to Louisa Lawson and Dawn. Tell us about that. Louisa was such a fascinating character and she was a very strong woman. She actually um, had five children. Uh, She lived in Mudgee at the time when she married Niels Glasson. And Peter was digging for gold and he was a handyman and Louisa got fed up with it, left him, moved to Sydney. And then in 1887, she bought the ailing newspaper, The Republican. And for a number of years, she and Henry wrote and edited most of The Republican. But then she started The Dawn. And she wanted to start The Dawn to publicize the rights of women and to fight for their suffrage. And she offered household advice as well, and fashion and poetry and short stories. And she reported on women's activities, not only locally, but across the world. So it was a really interesting thing for the women of the time to hear what was going on elsewhere regarding women's suffrage. And I think it's important that people know about Louisa Lawson. There's just not enough said about her. But here's another series of events which, given the current climate, really resonates. All of the references to epidemics. You had syphilis, smallpox, 
Spanish flu, polio. The hundred years is actually full of consecutive epidemics. epidemics. Yes, it is. And the one that really hit home, of course, with our current COVID epidemic uh, was the Spanish flu. Because very much like with COVID, they had this peak of infections and then it eventually died down. So they stopped all types of restrictions. Um, and then you got a second wave and then you got a third wave. And just like now, you had people protesting about having to wear masks. You had people refusing to isolate. COVID is a repeat of the Spanish flu epidemic. People have not changed in many ways. Two women in particular provide us with the continuity through this novel, Bessie and Bessie's daughter, Kathleen. And we first mm -hmm. come across Bessie in a children's home, and it's like something out of Jane Eyre. What were the reasons for Bessie being there? We don't really know. She has a mother that's still alive. Bessie thought that she was an orphan. And she kept on thinking that until she was about seven years old. She was there when she was a, a toddler. So we know she was a toddler. And it's not until she's about seven years old that this man comes, Cornelius, and says, your mother wants you back and pays the orphanage a certain sum for her past upkeep and takes Bessie home where Bessie meets her mother for the first time. And we never really know why Mercy, her mother, gave her away. But when you read about Mercy and her behaviour, you start to understand that something wasn't quite right there. Um, Bessie obviously was illegitimate because Mercy has trouble giving Bessie uh, any sort of believable story about who her father is and of course in those days illegitimacy was you know very much frowned upon and even more so having a child out of wedlock was very much frowned upon. But children were put into care so to speak and when I say care I use the term advisedly because of poverty or because of the social stigma associated with their birth and they're almost given away. Exactly. And something similar happened with Kathleen, of course, when she has her child and she has to earn a living. She's on her own. And she almost, almost but not quite, puts Gabriel, she tries to put Gabriel in a home during the week so that she can work, but it doesn't work out that way. But there was something that was quite commonly done when people couldn't afford to look after their children. But it also speaks of the enduring element there that not only Bessie, but Kathleen, Bessie's daughter, was considering it as well with her child. Yes. And even a lot later than this, I mean, uh, with Kathleen, we're up into the early 1900s, but even as far as the 1950s, girls were sent away without a reason, been given to have their illegitimate child. Um, there was a series on TV about such a home, you know, and as soon as the girls got admitted into hospital to have the child, they first had to sign a paper giving away the child, and they wouldn't even see it when it was born. And, I mean, here we're talking the 50s, 1950s, 1960s. Another aspect you've got here is the notion of marriage. Now, Bessie 
marries Bertram Griggs. But again, that's almost out of necessity. Well, it was out of necessity because she had had all contact with Cornelius and Mercy. And at the time, she was working as a lady's companion to the dowager Abigail Washington. But of course, when Abigail dies, then she's got nowhere to go, no money, because, you know, you've got paid very, very little as a companion. And Bertram, of course, has been around showing some interest. So she does the only option that she has at the time and she marries him. No, no idea of love there or anything like that. It was a convenience. And then to sort of abruptly cut the story short, Bertram, in fact, passes away because of smallpox. So does their child. And this leads then to Bessie meeting up again with Julian. But here's another interesting thing. The stigma Bessie feels almost prevents her from establishing a relationship with Julian. Yes, because by then Bessie has learned that she was probably illegitimate and she's also learned that her mother by that time is in a psychiatric, or as they called them in those days, mental hospital. And the stigma associated with having a mother you know, who's insane was tremendous. So she tends to push any sort of close relationship to feel safe because if he knew what her background was, he would most likely reject her. This brings us neatly back then to the concept of being an orphan. Bessie does meet up again with Mercy, her mother, but by this stage, Mercy is in an asylum, as you say, the stigma associated with that. But also then, Mercy is probably suffering from tertiary syphilis, which is the reason why she is in the asylum. And it prevents Bessie from ever finding out the truth about her parentage. That's right. Unfortunately, with syphilis, it's quite possible to have it and not realise that you do have it. Syphilis was rampant. It was another epidemic because, of course, Men often did not tell their wives they had syphilis because then the questions would be, how did you catch it? And a lot of people went on untreated. In fact, uh, before the 1940s in penicillin, it's been estimated that about 25% of patients in public psychiatric hospitals were suffering with what was called paralysis of the insane or paralytic dementia, which is untreated syphilis. And of course, when untreated, you get a a degeneration of the frontal and temporal lobes of the brains. And uh, some of the symptoms are personality changes, uh, euphoria, which then goes on to delusions of grandeur and ideas of great wealth, and unfortunately, by the time they enter the second stages, they have about 10 to 30 years after infection before they eventually die. And of course, Gabriel then doesn't really hear about his parentage. Gabriel is uh, Kathleen's son. His son. Again, because she's had a relationship with a soldier who was married. Yes, 
and he disowns his mother. Gabriel disowns his mother. So there are orphans of many a kind because they can never, because of social pressure, find out their background. Mm. It happened a lot then. I think it still happened. It's really interesting this change that's happened over the years. You know, now you have people seeking out their ancestry, you know, with places like ancestry.com and getting DNA tests and things like that, and all sorts of backgrounds coming out that were kept secret. I can understand people wanting to know their background. I also sometimes wonder how many families does that break up? Your novel does speak to the role of women in society, but again, it also speaks of how men are compromised and it's the social stigma in society which is restricting people's roles. So it's a fairly evenly balanced overview. Yeah, women bear the brunt, but I think, would I be correct in saying men can be victims as well? I think so. You know, if you have a look at uh, the Bertram, Bessie's first husband, his lifestyle, his early childhood, you know, his mother resorted to prostitution to feed her kids. Um, you know, he ran away. He knew he was a nobody as far as society was concerned. But he tried so hard to become somebody, except he didn't have the skills and he didn't have the right way of speaking and he didn't have the knowledge that middle class and higher classes had from birth. You know, it was with them, it's sort of built in in their upbringing. So yes, a lot of men were restricted by, you know, the social norms of the time. And the social and norms prevented people from actually admitting to the truth or acknowledging right. what was going on. That's right. Well. Dominic, it's an interesting account. The book is called Orphan Rock, which is actually a geological feature in New South Wales, but it okay. speaks to the arc of Australian history as much as to the characters within the novel. The book is released by Transit Lounge. So, Dominic, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me, David. I appreciate it. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.